Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to award-winning Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old-school basketball to a new-school audience, and today we bring you the story of the time that Elgin Baylor took a stand against racism. The year was 1959, and the location was Charleston, West Virginia. Baylor was in his rookie year with the Minneapolis Lakers. And of course, you might be asking yourself why the Lakers were playing a regular season game in West Virginia. I mean, the state of West Virginia has never been home to an NBA team at any point in its history. But keep in mind that this is 1959, and the NBA was a much different place back then. The NBA was not a billion dollar operation that it is today where players are paid and treated like kings. The NBA of 1959 was a place where many players had jobs in the offseason to help make ends meet because NBA salaries were not quite enough to support a player with a young family. Back then, it was really only the superstars who made enough money that they did not have to have another job in the offseason. As such, the NBA was always looking to explore new cities for potential future growth. What they would do is they would have two teams play in a neutral city to see if the response from that city was such that the NBA could explore that city further as a potential new NBA city. These games in neutral cities were more like exploratory missions. In fact, during that same season, the Minneapolis Lakers played games in neutral cities like Portland, San Francisco, Houston, Dallas, and Providence. It was almost like the NBA World Tour and every team had to participate. But in this particular case, there was a more specific reason that the NBA chose to have the Minneapolis Lakers play in Charleston, West Virginia. It was the hometown of Lakers star player Hot Rod Hundley. They figured that to have a sort of homecoming game for Hot Rod would guarantee a sellout crowd. Hot Rod had played his college ball at West Virginia University and was still incredibly popular throughout the state. At the time of the game, Hot Rod Hundley was still considered the greatest player to come out of the state of West Virginia. But that unofficial title would soon be snatched away by a younger player by the name of Jerry West. But that is a completely different story. Jerry West was still two years away from joining the NBA at the time of this story. Again, the NBA and the teams themselves liked doing anything that they could to help guarantee a sellout. Back then, the primary way that NBA teams made money was from ticket sales. Television contracts were still in the future, and the NBA had yet to figure out how to sell team merchandise like it does today. The bulk of any team's earnings were ticket sales. Today, ticket sales are important, but a relatively small part of a team's income. The bulk of the income for the NBA today is television and merchandise. Earlier that same season in 1959, the Minneapolis Lakers played the Boston Celtics in Seattle, Washington as a homecoming game for Elgin Baylor, who had played his college ball at Seattle University. 
And I think you know where I'm going with this. It would be like having the LA Lakers of today playing a game in Akron, Ohio as a homecoming game for LeBron James, or the Boston Celtics playing a game in St. Louis as a homecoming game for Jason Tatum. So there they were in Charleston, West Virginia to play the Cincinnati Royals. The Lakers had just traveled from Syracuse, New York, where they had played the Nationals the night before. The Lakers arrived around 4 p.m. on the day of the game and were checking into their hotel before heading over to the arena for that night's game. Team captain and and Hall of Famer Vern Mickelson was in charge of checking in for the team and collecting all of the room keys. And yes, back then it was an actual brass key attached to a tag that displayed the room number on it. As Mickelson was checking in, the desk clerk said that the team was welcome, but not those players. What he meant by those players was Elgin Baylor, Boo Ellis, and Ed Fleming, the only three black players on the team. Baylor overheard the desk clerk and went to confront him, and he said, quote, Pardon me? What did you just say? Unquote. The desk clerk completely ignored Baylor. He would not even speak directly to a black person. He only addressed Mickelson to confirm what he had already said. Only the white players were welcome to stay in the hotel. The three black players had to stay somewhere else. Now, even the white players and the Lakers were not comfortable with this situation. Baylor, Ellis, and Fleming were their teammates, and they felt a sense of loyalty to them. The Laker players quickly got on the phone with team owner Bob Short back in Minneapolis to explain the situation and try to figure out what to do. Short asked to speak to the desk clerk himself, but the desk clerk would not back down. He explained to Bob Short what the situation was. The clerk had handed the phone back to the Lakers players, and they were instructed by Short to leave the hotel and find somewhere that would allow the entire team to stay together. That hotel had just lost the Lakers business for that night. Now remember, this was all happening in the late afternoon on a game day. The clock was ticking. They would have to find a new hotel, get checked in, and get over to the arena in time for the warm-ups for the game. Now this is a good place to take a break, and I'll be right back with the rest of the story. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique Unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, R-O-W number one, for access to the full Row 1 catalog and for gallery prints and gift items, plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row 1 Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. Hello, sports history fans. I'm Ross from the podcast Pigskin Tales. You're about to jump into another thrilling sports history moment. But first, let's dive into today's sponsor, just in time for the holiday season. Introducing Art of Words 
the brainchild of word artist Dan Duffy from Philadelphia. Dan meticulously crafts stunning images by handwriting relevant words from some of the greatest sports moments in time. These unique budget-friendly illustrations are the perfect gift, sparking cherished memories and capturing hearts. Choose from city skylines, sports, history, and musicians to find a piece for everyone. And here's the exciting part. For that sports fanatic in your life, gift them a piece of their favorite team or player's history. Art of Words tells a compelling story. Explore collegiate stadiums, each meticulously crafted with every football victory etched into words. Or venture into baseball stadiums, handwritten with every player from the team's illustrious history. My favorite on the site is Bryce Harper 2021 MVP year. Because I'm a big stats guy, I think that's one of the coolest things ever. Check it out! Don't wait! Order a print today for yourself and your loved one this holiday season. Transform your wall into a gallery of captivating art and surprise your family and friends with a print of their own. Use code SHN15 at artofwords.com for a 15% discount on your order in November and December. Visit Art of Words, where words magically transform into stunning art evoking cherished memories and touching the hearts of those who you care about. Again, use the code SHN15 for 15% off at artofwords.com. Welcome back to the show and let us continue with the story of when Elgin Baylor took a stand. As I mentioned before the break, the original hotel in Charleston, West Virginia that the Minneapolis Lakers were supposed to stay in did not allow black guests. So the entire team went and found a new hotel. The only place in Charleston that would allow the entire team to stay together was in the black section of the city. It was called Edna's Retirement Hotel and they had rooms available for the whole team. Now, unlike today's NBA, where every player and staff person gets their own room, back then, NBA players had to partner up and stay two to a room. The only person who got his own room was the head coach. Also, NBA teams back then only traveled with players and the head coach. There were no assistant coaches back then. There were no trainers, equipment managers, or any other staff person who would travel with the team. Today's NBA often travels with 30 to 35 people per team. But back in 1959, teams only traveled with 10 players and a single coach, so they only needed six rooms to accommodate everyone. Today's NBA requires around 35 rooms per team anytime that they travel. Often, they just take up an entire floor because that's easier to secure by placing guards at the elevators and the stairwell. But let us get back to 1959. Now, the name Edna's Retirement Hotel makes it sound like it was an assisted living facility. It was not. It was what was then known as a house of ill repute. So, while the team thought it was important to stay together, the accommodations at Edna's were not exactly first class. They were not even second class. In an interview where Baylor was relaying the story, he said that at the time he turned to his white teammates and said, quote, now you see what it's like on the other side, unquote. But now that they were all checked in, it was time to head to the arena for warmups. However, Baylor had decided that he was not going to play in the game. This was not a preseason game or anything like that. This was a regular season game. Losing Baylor was a big deal for the Lakers. Even though he was still just a rookie, he was already 24 years old and he was the team's leading scorer and leading rebounder. He was averaging 25 points and 15 rebounds per game. The next closest was Vern Mickelson with 14 points and eight rebounds per game. This could spell disaster for the Lakers in terms of winning the game. But Baylor had made up his mind and decided that the city of Charleston did not deserve to see him play after the way he was treated. 
Ellis and Fleming, the other two black players, well, they did play the game, even though they had received the same treatment. But Baylor had something going for him that Ellis and Fleming did not. Baylor was a superstar, and he knew that other teams were constantly approaching the Lakers about trading for Baylor to get them on their teams. He was in demand, and not only by other teams, but also by fans in general. Baylor was one of the most exciting players to ever come through the NBA. He was a must-see player. He knew that he would suffer no consequences by sitting out this particular game. He was too good of a player. However, for Ellis and Fleming, things were different. They were role players who came off the bench for the Lakers, and they were much more vulnerable. They were worried about being cut if they did not play the game. So let me give you even more context for the thinking process of Ellis and Fleming. Back in the NBA of the late 1950s, most NBA teams only carried three black players on each team. They were afraid that any more black players than that and they would alienate their own fans. So the unwritten rule was to have only three black players per team and never to have more than two of them on the court at the same time. The only team that did not care about this rule was the Boston Celtics. The Celtics coach and general manager Red Arbach brought in whoever he thought could best help the team win, regardless of skin color. That is why, just a few years later, the Celtics became the first team to start five black players for a game. Arbach only cared about a player's skill level, which is the way it should be. Anyway, back to Ellis and Fleming. They were genuinely and rightly worried about their jobs if they did not play, because most teams only allowed up to the three black players and meant that there was a lot of really good black players that were out there just waiting to take one of their roster spots. There were many black players who were better than some of the white role players, but they were victims of this unofficial quota system. So again, Ellis and Fleming were worried about their jobs if they did not play. So Baylor being very gracious and with understanding of the situation gave Ellis and Fleming his blessing to go ahead and play in the game. If he had been in their situation, he probably would have done the same thing. But his status as a league superstar afforded him the ability to sit out the game with little to no repercussions. So that is what he did. He sat out and let the rest of the team play without him. In Baylor's absence, Larry Faust carried the scoring load for the Lakers. Faust only averaged 12 points per game that season, but scored 23 on this particular night in an effort to keep up with the Cincinnati Royals. But without Baylor, the Royals proved to be too much to handle. The Royals won the game 95-91, to and the Lakers could have really used the victory. They had lost seven of their previous eight games coming into this contest. They were in a situation where they needed a win badly, but they weren't able to get one on this night. However, they would win their next game two nights later against the Philadelphia Warriors with Baylor back in the lineup. Now, after the game in Charleston, the local group that helped organize the game was boiling mad. The group was called the American Business Club of Charleston, and they were furious that Baylor decided to sit out because of his treatment at that first hotel. They claimed that Baylor embarrassed their organization and damaged their chances of ever hosting future NBA games. Well, in that respect, they were probably right. The group estimated that they suffered a financial loss of $800 on this game once word got out that Baylor was not gonna play. And if they were embarrassed, they should have tried to imagine what it was like for Baylor when he was refused a room at the original hotel. The American Business Club formally protested Baylor's absence and went to the NBA demanding that Baylor be punished. And the NBA did nothing. And neither did the Lakers. The morning after the game, the Lakers simply left town. 
Now, I know that this story makes the city of Charleston, West Virginia look bad. Remember that this was 1959, and I tried to do my best to tell a story as accurately as I can. However, I do keep the language clean because I know that there are kids who listen to this podcast, and even my youngest, who is 12 years old, likes to listen to this podcast because he is a huge basketball fan. So I keep him in mind as I bring you a new story each week. But I am also a person of color, which I rarely mention because in the big scheme of things, it's not that important. I I want to be judged by my skill, not by what I happen to look like. I cannot control what I look like, but I can control the level of effort and skill that I bring to any job. And I will say this about the city of Charleston, West Virginia. I traveled there recently and I was able to stay in any hotel in the city. I was warmly greeted by the desk person at my hotel and was treated respectfully. I grabbed dinner out and I had a wonderful conversation with the restaurant manager about what life was like in Charleston, West Virginia. Not once did I ever feel uncomfortable and I would gladly go back there again. So that is our story for today. That was a time that Elton Baylor took a stand for what he believed in and I applaud his actions. If I had been in that same situation, I might have done the same thing. So join us next week as we go all the way back to episode one of this podcast and give you an updated version of our very first story, the invention of the game of basketball and the very first game ever played. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcast and check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. <laughs>